We're pleased to have Pastor Keith Kainer with us today. He and his wife came up from down around the Grand Rapids area yesterday. And so they'll be with us this Sunday and next Sunday. They're staying in Pastor and Beth's house for the week. And so come and share what the Lord has given given you. Thank you. Is there enough wire on this that I can move it forward a little bit? Oh, sure. Okay. I think there's room there. Okay. All right. Well, good morning. I am honored to be with you today, my wife and I together. We did have a wonderful drive up yesterday, and uh, there were some many moments, many sections of minutes of as we drove that the sun was out and the beautiful white fields. It was just delightful. And we're delighted to be with you, as I say, a sorry church that uh, we are grateful for. When I get to heaven, I will want to see the Lord Jesus first. And then I will want to be with family members. And then I will want to visit a certain man. A certain man. Uh, Joseph in the Bible gets 14 chapters, 13 chapters, 14 chapters. I got to look at my notes, figure out which one it is. <laughs> you can laugh. It's okay. You can laugh at me. It's okay. Abraham gets 13 chapters. Joseph gets 14. The man I want to talk with you about this morning gets 54 chapters in the Bible. Paul is mentioned 163 times in Scripture. This man is mentioned, Moses is mentioned about 700 times. The man I want to speak with you about this morning is mentioned 1,127 times in the Bible. Uh, he is probably, certainly in the top 10 of the most thoroughly reported lives in all of Scripture. Very possibly he's in the top 5 of the most thoroughly reported lives in Scripture. He's more than a poem written from the perspective of a sheep. He's more than a uh, having killed a great warrior. He's more than trouble with a beautiful woman. Before it was said of the Lord Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the experience of this man. Now I tell, I admit to you that it was more applicable to our Lord Jesus than it was to this man. But chronologically, it occurred first. It was first directed when this man said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus never called the son of Jeremiah, never called the son of Daniel, never called the son of Isaiah. He's called the son of Daud, David, the son of David. He is quite a man. And yet our affection is not our our. our we, we don't want to become like David. We want to come like Jesus. And yet, he is frequently held up as a, as a typical, as a parallel with the Lord Jesus. It's amazing that God would allow any person's life to parallel that of the God-man. But frequently, 
there's parallels between David and the Lord Jesus. You know, normally when a person is swept into office with a mandate, some politician, some leader, it seems it's almost inevitable that over the period of a, a term of service or something like that, a, a period of leadership, that the individual's reputation declines. And if you look at 2 Samuel 18.3 and 21.17, you'll see that at the end of David's life, as he was getting ready to go out to battle, his men said, oh no, you're not going. If 10,000 of us die, it won't matter. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. You stay home and be protected. I, I think that's amazing. If, I, if I'm being ordered into battle, I want the guy ordering me to be 10 feet ahead of me. What a terrifying thing to be a young man in Iraq or Afghanistan on those patrols where men were simply spaced out 20, 30 feet apart and marched into a village. That lead guy was in the sights of every Al-Qaeda person, every terrorist, or you know, all those people. But these people said to David, no, you stay in the back where you're safe. At the end of his life, he was called, said, don't quench the light of Israel. That's at the end of his life. When normally things would have reputation gone downhill. Now he did have his detractors. Read in Psalm 69, verse 12. I have become the song of drunkards. Could you imagine walking down the street and hearing some ribald music come out of the bar and he was the song of drunkards being sung about? Uh, Jeremiah had the same experience. So he did have his detractors, but basically he ends his life on top. Loved, honored, respected, protected. Not too many people can say that about their lives. Most people get elected and uh, they find that uh, the people expect them to fulfill their promises, but they get into office and they find that 95% of the things that they inherited are all that's just all set in stone and they can't deliver on their promises and reputations decline. Not David. Well, if you had stood yesterday down at the corner of 117 and 2, there would have been many cars go by. It's interesting to realize that the living God knows every person's name. He loves everyone. He's at work in everyone. He knows what they're going, what they're thinking, what motivates them, where they are. He knows them all. In a similar way, as God was seeking to construct every person on Highway 2 or across the bridge, whatever it may be, every one of you and every one of us, God was busy constructing the four principal people of our passage. Eliab, Samuel, Jesse, and David. Believers under construction. God is constructing you. He is working to change us to be like his son. He's so impressed with his son that he wants to replicate him in everyone's life who claims to follow him. To an observer, Samuel's 10-mile journey to Ramah and back to Bethlehem, rather, it seemed like routine. God had given Samuel only the name of the family from which 
the future king of Israel would be. He knew the family, he knew the Joneses or the Smiths or the Johnsons, but he didn't know which member of the Johnsons and, and uh, Smiths and, uh, um, uh, what was the other one, Johnson, Smith, Jones, I don't know. Knew the family, didn't know the name. And, uh, you know, this mission was on a, a need-to-know, information was on a need-to-know basis. Um. Well, join me, please, in the great 16th, 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning that was read. Thank you, Mr. Oldberg, for reading the scripture. First, Samuel and the 16th chapter. good acoustics in here, aren't there? You hear me blow my nose. <laughs> Very happy to see the heater coil up there. <laughs> it's nice to be warm, isn't it? Very nice. Very nice. Well, um, Bethlehem was not happy to see Samuel when he came. Uh, according to chapter 7, verse 16, he was a circuit-riding judge who went from city to city to city, town to town, etc. Uh, Samuel was a legendary figure. Um, and they wondered, who sinned? Who sinned that Samuel has come? See that thought there, what is it, verse 4, I think? Uh, it says the elders trembled when they met him. He was not... His, his legendary reputation was not built on a lifetime of small talk. He was, a, he was a dignified, diligent, godly man. I don't know that he would have been all that comfortable dinner company. He was not given, I don't I picture him as given to levity. He was a serious prophet. He was a godly man. His concern was to honor God with his life and see Israel honor God. So when he came to town, there was a lot of foot shuffling and uh, nervous handshaking and staring at the floor and so forth. But when that was all over, then we read that he relieved their guilt, as he says there in verse what? Verse 5, yes, in peace have I come. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. So guilt turns to gaiety and, oh, okay, Samuel's here, great. And it says, sanctify yourselves. Exodus 19, 10 to 22 tells us how an Israelite got sanctified. We would say, go home and wash up because there's going to be a service back here too. Okay? So they, they disperse and, and uh, they, uh, they get ready for church, we would say. Uh, I, picture, I picture Samuel inquiring, is there somebody named Jesse around here? Oh, that, oh that, that, that's him over there? Yeah. I picture Samuel going over to him and saying, now, Jesse, you know up there by the correctional facility? I want to meet you behind the back there where it's private one hour after the service closes. Bring all your sons. So everyone goes home, washes up, comes back. Now the actual church service, if I can use that term, and the 
the white space between verse 5 and verse 6. It's not germane to the anointing of David, so it's not really recorded. They, uh, they hold the service, and for all, apparent, uh, all appearances, Samuel returns to Ramah. Of course, instead, he goes down to just uh, on the back side of the correctional facility and uh, waits. And as he waits, I, I think he was thinking. You know, he stepped down from leadership approximately 30 years before. He had poured himself into the nation of Israel. He had uh, worked very diligently, uh, so much so that he apparently didn't have enough, didn't invest a lot of time in his sons, and they were not doing all that well. Not that parents can't invest a great deal in their children, and their children still not respond. Um, so he's, I, I think he's thinking, and I think he's, I think he's trying to, you know, he, he'd had some stolen glances over during the service to where Jesse was standing and, and uh, trying to, you know, capture what was in the, those people over there, those sons, and which one was it? And I, nostalgia must have rolled over him, the decades of his service, and, and Saul had been rejected many years before. And uh, now, now Samuel had a legitimate reason to expect a captain over his people, Chapter 13, verse 14 of the King James speaks of that. And so he is, he's expecting kind of a grown-up, husky, strong, you know, virile-looking man to be the next king. And he's trying to think about who around Jesse was that person, who, who fits that bill. Well, then they came into view. They're marching to where he's meeting them. And he looks... And he looks at Eliab and he says, yes, Lord, wonderful, excellent. Look, look at his regal bearing. Look at his, look at his manner. Look at his manly deportment and how, how husky and strong he looks. Oh, Lord, great choice, great choice. Well, this was a solemn moment, not one to rush. The boys are there standing, I picture, I imagine, at attention. Jesse is standing at attention. Probably the boys and Jesse do not know why they are there. So the boys are waiting on Dad. Dad's waiting on Samuel. Samuel's waiting to keep his heart and mind clear and open for indication as to which one is the next king. Uh, Jesse was about to present Eliab, the oldest, This is logical because we know he presents Shema second and Abinadab third, second son, third son. So it makes sense that Jesse was going to present Eliab first because that was his oldest. That was his, uh, you know, that was the big guy. <clears throat> Into that silence, the Lord sent a message. The content of which is in verse seven. You know the verse. It's a famous verse. Don't look on the outward appearance. Because man looks, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Famous verse applied in all kinds of situations and all kinds of people. Into this silence, the Lord sends a message, the content of which is verse 7. Was it something that kind of, kind of, kind of a neon sign impression in his mind, blinking at his mind? Was it a voice? that he only he heard or understood, or was it a voice everyone understood? We don't know, but 
This was the content of what God said to Samuel as they're all standing there in silence waiting for direction. What a moment. And the living God said, I don't want this son as king. I reject him. Some, you look at the outward appearance, but my sight pierces beneath the surface of what can be seen, and I see the heart and the attitude. And this man is not, this man is not kingly. Let's think about verse 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Outward appearance. Now, there's, there's a plus and a minus in the outward appearance. Um, the plus is, of course, we've got to take care of things. Man looks at the outward appearance. I remember driving when I was in seminary. I was driving to, uh, I, I had a route that I drove regularly. And there was a sign that was advertising barbecued chicken. And every letter dripped paint. <laughs> you know, I never stopped for barbecued chicken. I, they didn't get the sign right. I wasn't sure they'd get chicken right. Outward appearance, you see. Got to take care of things because people look at the outward appearance. Sometimes after I get a shower and my hair is just going like this, you know, and I just leave it in its original condition and go to bed. Um, somebody came to the door and scare them, you know. <laughs> outward appearance. Well, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the positive that we, we take care of things. The negative, of course, is that many people can spend far, far, far too much money and too much energy and too much time on the outward appearance. Um, it just, you know, that's the way it is. What about this matter of God looks on the heart? Well, there's a positive and a negative here, too. What is the positive? The positive is this, and I want you really to be encouraged about this. Here's the positive. God sees what you want to do, and he gives you some credit for your motives and your desire, even if you don't actually do it. Some missionary drives in here, and you happen to walk out there, and you see his tires are bald, and his, you wonder if his gas tank is empty, and, and so you want to steal his car, and you want to fill up with gas and put new tires on it and drive it back and put it in the spot when he comes out of the service, he's ready to go. You want, you've thought about that, haven't you? You'd love to have him over for dinner. You'd love to slip him an extra hundred bucks anonymously, quietly, sticking his Bible. You want to do that, and God sees that. And he gives you credit for your desire. 1 Kings 8.18 David, you have done well in wanting to build a temple. David didn't actually build a temple, did he? But God said, you have done well in wanting to build a temple. God is giving David credit for what David wanted to do, even though he didn't actually do it. God sees your heart. That's the positive. What's the negative? The negative, of course, is that God is not fooled. We may snow other people, pun intended, but people are, you know... People, we can fool people. We can convince people we're righteous when we're not. We can convince people that we are, uh, we are, uh, you know, whatever. You know, we're, we're we look at the outward appearance. We as Christians are supposed to be forgiving and welcoming and 
And so we'll entertain some, some shyster coming by to take us, you know. But God sees our hearts. He knows when, when, we, are, uh, when we are honest, when we are exaggerating, lying by exaggerating. He knows that. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Okay. We've got to move along here. Otherwise, we're going to be here until 1230. Or until 12. Um, I'm convinced, I think it makes sense, that Samuel would have been stunned by what this message was. But in verses 8 through 10, Samuel spoke up and said to Jesse, have all your sons walk by. So I picture them walking down the runway, walking back, pirouetting, and waiting for some message to come from heaven as to which son was going to be king. You think I'll get hired to do the runway? I don't think so. Um, and, uh, and, and none of them, heaven was silent. So uh, when Jesse ran out of sons, Samuel says, are these all your sons? And, and then Jesse says in verse 12, well, no, uh, the youngest, and he's keeping the sheep. And, and Samuel says, well, send and get him, because we're going to stand up till he gets here. With a nod of Jesse's head to the second old and second youngest son, he dispatches his son to go and get David and bring him back. Well, uh, breathless from running, this uh, second from youngest son, I imagine, I don't know that, it's not biblical, that's just my guess. So one of the sons um, comes to David and tells him that Samuel is waiting for him uh, behind the correctional facility uh, up there. And so uh, it must have warned David to know that at least Samuel didn't think the family circle was complete without him, even though apparently Jesse did. Um, he comes into view, and the brothers are uh, wondering what little Davy had that they didn't have. Eliab is nursing a wounded spirit. Um, Jesse is hoping to get back in the good graces, and Samuel's trying not to judge on the basis of outward appearance. And the Spirit of God says in verse 12, Arise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, there had been no inspection for Eliab. There had been silence. He'd been passed over in silence. If, if the message was silent, it was, there was, he didn't get to walk down the runway. None for David, but for the opposite reason. Others had gone home to sanctify themselves, get cleaned up for church. We would say, not for David. God spoke as clearly for David as he spoke against Eliab. So there stands David, the anointing oil running the length of his body in the midst of his brothers. What a moment for the young man. You know, there are, there are moments in your life that are highlight moments from which you draw encouragement and you will have to, it will have to nourish you for a long time. There are events you can remember 20 years ago where God did something for you and you remember that. And that feeds your soul and you march on as a good soldier of Jesus Christ because of that thing that happened 35 years ago. And then there was something, there was a, there was a moment uh, 18 years ago. I 
Isaiah said, in the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, chapter 6. It was, a, it was a moment there that he enshrined in his heart. Jeremiah said the same thing. He said, two years before the earthquake, dating things. Well, this would have been one of those moments for David where he would nourish that and that would help him for years to come. He was facing years of persecution. I believe 11 years of being a, a fugitive from Saul. And he would need a lot of strength. In chapter 24 and chapter 26, David remembers that Saul is the Lord's anointed. And he had a high respect for that and placed high value on that. And so we can be sure that he felt that his own anointing was just as important and from which he would draw great nourishment. Well, okay, we rush on now to four lessons, the four principles being constructed. What are the lessons that God was specifically sending to these four individuals, the principles in the passage? What is the lesson for Jesse? How was God constructing Jesse? And by the way, um, if you are interested in the book, uh, Everyone who comes next Sunday gets a copy and wants one, free of charge. Um, so uh, come next uh, Sunday and you'll get a book that has most of what I'm saying. Well, no, that's not right. It has, well, it has much of it, okay? Um, so you have to check out, mind wander something, maybe you can catch up that way, okay? What are the lessons for these for these four? For these people, well, I think the lesson for Jesse was rebuking for rebuked for incomplete obedience and parental partiality. When none of the when none of the seven uh, was the one, Jesse uh, Samuel said to Jesse, "Are these all your sons?" You see, God's appointment for David would not be lost, not be thwarted by the father's negligence. Jesse's excuse was, someone had to watch the sheep. Um, sounds a little weak, doesn't it? He's supplying extra information. I, I mean, I had to have something. He's watching the sheep, you know. When you and I supply extra information, I know that when I supply extra information to my wife, I'm, I'm covering myself. When you supply extra information, you're probably covering yourself, too, explaining why, you know, what is, what's happened here? Well, you know, it's interesting. In chapter 17, verse 20, there was a... Oh, I got a guy on the front row checking on me here. See if I got the reference right. She's checking me out. Chapter 17, verse 20, if I read my notes right, if I wrote the notes right, there was a sheep sitter found to take care of the sheep. Somebody had to take care of the sheep as David goes to report. He's going to kill Goliath. If they got a sheep sitter in chapter 17, verse 17, why couldn't they have got a sheep sitter for this? He just hadn't done it, see? He had not fully obeyed Samuel. Now, here's a grown man with eight sons. You'd think that he would obey, wouldn't you? You know, we're mostly adults here, a few precious children. Young people, it's wonderful. Um, we adults have to obey God. 
We have to model obedience. They have to see us obeying God. And the more difficult it is for us to obey God, the more powerful it will be in the lives of those in our sphere of influence. We have to model it before we can expect it back from our sons and daughters, our grandchildren. We've got to obey God. Um, so, incomplete obedience on Jesse's part. Secondly, parental favoritism. Parental favoritism. Samuel was the greatest man alive. Why wouldn't Jesse have invited all of his sons to come and meet with this man? It was time to make it happen. Um, if Michael Jordan, my sons love basketball. Our sons love basketball. If Michael Jordan or uh, who's the other guy? LeBron James. Uh, anybody know those names? A few? Okay. If one of those guys was coming to dinner at our house and I didn't let my sons know, I would be in deep weeds. <laughs> there was time to get David, cover the sheep and get David's there. Um, this, just, this just makes sense. Jesse had to know the spiritual interest of his son. He had to know. He had to know that he would love to be invited to be with Samuel. Samuel told him to bring all of his sons, so he should have been included. He appears to favor Jesse, his oldest. You recall all the, all the misery that came into the lives of the 12 tribes of Israel because of Jacob's favoring of Joseph and the jealousy that resulted from that. So here is, uh, so here is uh, Jesse just not, not doing things right. Um, I would add, too, though, that parents are people. Did you think your sister was their favorite? Did you think that your sister was their, the favorite of mom and dad? Don't, don't raise your hand. Don't, don't amen. Don't smile at me. Um, there's, there may have been a reason for that. Parents are people. They're human beings. They respond to teachableness on the part of a, of a, a son or daughter. growing up. They respond to gratitude. They respond to helpfulness. They're people. Making a living is consuming. It's, it's exhausting to lead a family. It is, takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of diligence. It takes a lot of, of humiliation at work just to stay employed so you can have a check, so you can have an income. And as I say, parents appreciate teachableness and helpfulness and gratitude. Well, maybe, maybe not, but maybe there's a reason why you think your sister was the favorite. Maybe she was, because mom and dad are human. Okay. Well, the lesson for Eliab is, uh, is uh, incomplete obedience and parental partiality. What's the lesson for Jesse? Excuse me, for Eliab. Pride rebuked. Pride rebuked. When the sons were reviewed, Eliab was ignored, looked over, not recognized as the oldest. There would be nothing later he could look back on to console him with. God specifically rejected him. Why? I'm convinced it was pride. We read in chapter 17, verse 29, where, where Eliab says to David, I know thy pride and the foolishness of thine heart. That's King James. I don't know what the NIV says. That's King James. He was seemed to be a proud man. A proud person. 
You know, people will stand just about anything but pride. They will put up with anything but pride. People will tolerate anything but pride. Baseball quit Babe Ruth. No one could live with a guy. Dennis Rodman, the well-traveled ex-piston, nobody could handle him. He was a he was a different kind of guy, see? Great basketball player, but you couldn't get along with a guy, you know? He was proud. You know, it's a funny thing. We can be proud about anything you can name. Anything you can name. Oh, I'm, I'm always on time. Boy, I'm always on time. I, oh, we're going to be late. We're going to get I'm on time. And we become proud about always being on time. You can be proud about not being on time. Yeah, when I get there, I'm on time. Yeah, things function on my timetable. Yeah. Oh, I take care of my body. I'm, I, I eat right. Too bad for the rest of you turkeys, you know. I'm very careful what I eat. A la da <laughs> Or the opposite. Oh, I see those guys jogging and jiggling, and I, they look stupid, and, you know, I'm, just, I'm relaxed in life. You know, if I, if I go to heaven with a few extra pounds, a little bit more of me, that's fine, you know. Be proud about not taking care of your body, being relaxed beyond what is productive for good health. We can be proud about anything. It's a funny thing. Funny thing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who makes you differ one from, an, from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Are you blessed with a really sharp mind so you're smart? That's a gift from God. Are you blessed with a beautiful face and a beautiful appearance and, and uh, athletics or athletic skill? A gift from God. Why do you act like, oh, yeah, I did this myself. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. Eliab had not learned Proverbs 15.33. Of course, it hadn't been written yet. Written by Solomon later, before pride, before honor is humility. Winston Churchill rejected the arrogant and uh, pompous Charles de Gaulle in 1941. He was so, from the leader of the Free French, later president of of the uh, French nation, he was so difficult to work with. He was so arrogant. People put up with just about anything but pride. Number three, what is David's lesson? I love this one. But the best lesson is last. The uh, The best lesson is last. David's lesson, I think, is certainty. Certainty. So, incomplete obedience and uh, uh, parental partiality on, on, on Jesse's part. Pride on the part of Eliab. On number three, David's lesson, certainty. Um, minutes before, David was not even aware that Samuel was in the area. He was, he was just unaware of that. But now he stood in the midst of his brethren with the, with the oil running over him. And oh, how this vindicated him. Oh, how that encouraged him. You've had God, you know, Psalm says that he would make your righteousness shine as the, as the noonday sun. There are times when you have been vindicated. You have been encouraged. 
because others found out about a hidden integrity that you'd functioned on for years, and they discovered it. And all of a sudden, you felt like, I've, I, I'm finally recognized to a legitimate degree. David was vindicated by the, by the, uh, by the anointing. Oh, how that lifted him. Uh, the other brothers knew they had been passed over. Eager questions would have been pressed down upon Samuel. Uh, and I'm convinced that David would have recreated that moment in the, in the following weeks and months of uh, shepherding alone with the sheep. He would have recreated that moment whereby he was drawn into the presence of the greatest man alive and anointed. You know, when an airplane crashes, they will, they will, the authorities will come up with all the wreckage and reassemble the plane, find out where the explosion was, what happened. And I'm convinced that David would have reconstructed that moment. He would have pressed eager questions upon Samuel before he left. He would have asked his father. He would have talked with his brothers. He would have reconstructed that moment in his life in a a piece-by-piece mosaic that just came together, and he would draw nourishment for that in the coming years. He needed to be certain. He was facing 11 years of fugitive living. You need to be certain. You face uncertainty. Um... I'm a younger man than some of you. I'm an older man than some of you. Uh, I am sensing that uh, my body is starting to tell me that I'm not as young as I used to be. And, uh, you know, I need certainty. You need certainty. We're all facing enough challenges and difficulties and hardships that we need certainty. We like things for sure. We like a reservation. And I like my boarding pass, you know, <laughs> in my hand. <laughs> I like a reservation in a restaurant if they are open again, you know. Um, we like we like certainty. Um, David will draw certainty for this for years to come. He lift God had to lift David's thinking from shepherding. Sheep to shepherding a nation. He needs certainty about that, you know. Um, how you, by the way, how you think about yourself is critical. Your fantasies, what you dream about, what you imagine, what goes on in your head is critical. What you think is important. David has to learn to think. I'm going to be the king. I'm going to be responsible for this nation. What kind of a king am I going to be? He thinks what you think about, what you dream about, what you fantasize about. Now, we can have some revenge fantasies that aren't so good. We can have other fantasies that are bad. Some fantasies are really could be really good. When I become king, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to reward that honesty, and I'm going to reward these people who are conscientious, and I'm going to promote this person. And that can be some good things we think about, you know. Your mind is a gift from God, and what you do is important. David has to have a settled confidence. Um, we need to be secure in God's love for us. Um, I'm so glad that the Bible teaches that we can know that we're redeemed. You can't unring a bell or unborn a baby or 
put the toothpaste back in the tube, and if I didn't save me, I can't lose me. The great eighth of Romans ends with Paul talking about a number of things, I believe ten, that could not separate us from the love of God. And one of them is present things, or things to come, or power, or anything. I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. I am a terrible sinner. How do I know that? I can be instantly annoyed, instantly impatient, instantly irritated. Are you like me? Or am I the only sinner in the room? I am a sinner. We could, the evil one can take our sins and just grind them into us. Oh, you can't be saved. You're of no value. God doesn't care about you. I'm so glad that nothing can separate us from the love of God because sin is a thing present. See if I can find that. Romans 8. You might want to just buzz there for just a second. I promise not to keep you too long in Romans 8. Let's see. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life is sin part of life? Yeah. Nor angels, nor demons, nor nor the present. Is th- sin a thing that's present? Hello? Yeah. Nor the future. Is sin going to be in the future? I mean, if we think anything would separate us from love of God, wouldn't it be our sin? Would it be our guilt? Well, sin is a thing present, things a thing in the future. Nor anything else in all creation. Oh, there's the blank check, folks. That's it. God will not reject us. I will never leave you or forsake you. He says that. Scripture. Is that Hebrews? Is that Hebrews? I don't know where that is. We need security. We need security. We want security. Okay. We got to move on. I just skipped over three pages. I'll give, I'll give you a real quick in something here that I want you to get. How do we become secure? How do we become secure? So that we feel it. I mean, it's one thing for it to be said. It's in Scripture. How do I feel it? I want to feel it. I want to know it. I want, I want to feel God's arms around me, as do you. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Luke eleven thirteen. Who ask Him? Do we ask? Is that within our power to ask? Yeah. Now it's He's talking to He's talking to His own, so it can't be talking about salvation. Talking about enablement, empowerment. As you sense the Spirit of God using you, you become sure. Acts two Acts five thirty eight is the other one. Um, Glance at, glance at that passage. Yeah, Acts five, Acts five thirty two. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Can we obey Him to improve our certainty? Acts five thirty two. Yeah, we can obey Him. As we obey Him, we increase our sense of security and confidence. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, it says there in verse 13, 1 Samuel 16, the Holy Spirit, from from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. As you sense the Spirit of God helping you, 
you just you just have more power. You just sense greater security. Okay, uh, Luke eleven thirteen, Acts five thirty two. Lesson for David: Certainty. What's the lesson for Samuel? Oh, I love this. I save the best for last because we're all in. We're all in God's lesson for Samuel. I believe the lesson for Samuel was encouragement. Um, Samuel had stepped down probably 30 years before the date of our text. When he will die in chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, the man he anointed first, Saul, will be hunting the man he anointed second, David. Now, how do you evaluate your contribution to the nation, to the church, to your family, to your community? If that were the case, the man united first is hunting the man united second. Things are going downhill, bad, under Saul. How do you how do you conclude what you did? You see, another decade goes by and things are not going well. Uh, so how is Samuel to evaluate that? Samuel needed encouragement. Well, let's come back to our famous verse, verse seven. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It is applied to many people in various situations, isn't it? I mean, you'll see this verse quoted many times and applied to various situations. But to whom does it fit first? To whom should it be first applied? Not a trick question. Who does it fit first? Risk it. Make a guess. Starts with S. That's right. Samuel. It applies first to Samuel. Why? Because Samuel has guessed wrong. It's interesting that, this, that God let him guess wrong based on his physical sight of what Eliab looked like. God lets him guess wrong so he can correct his thinking and thereby bring encouragement to jolt him out of his looking at the outward appearance. Some of you are in situations where you are looking at the outward appearance. The kids aren't doing so well. The grandkids are not responding. And it's very tempting for you to look at the outward appearance. Things are not going well. Junior's not coming to church. Things are not going well. He's not walking. She's not walking with the Lord. Eliab looked kingly, but he was not king material. You look at the outward appearance, Samuel. David will be ten times the king that Eliab ever would have been. See, God lets him guess wrong so he can correct him. Samuel doesn't see the gap between David's youth and his brilliant military career. Samuel's judgment about Eliab had been wrong. Likewise, he was wrong to judge his own contribution to the life of his nation was equally wrong because I assume it was a negative conclusion. Happy is the person who trusts the Lord with their lifetime as life draws to a close. Samuel needed encouragement, and if he was listening, he got it. If we are listening, we will get encouragement. 
from our faith, for our confidence that the living God will not waste what you have done. Your sons and daughters and grandchildren will never get away from what you have said to them and what you've modeled to them. That you love them and that God loves them. And God is at work. Ruthann, can we sing that song? Give us a note here and we'll see if I remember it. I'm not sure I do. you and me Oh how he loves you and me What he did there brought grief from despair Oh how he loves you Oh how he loves me Oh how he loves you Thank you.